January 6, 2023. Taliban and Chinese officials shake hands in front of clicking cameras. Finally, they've signed on the dotted line, agreeing on a lucrative oil extraction deal. With the long-awaited agreement, the Taliban will see an investment of $150 million a year, rising to $540 million in three years. In return, the Central Asia Petroleum and Gas Company have been granted permission to extract minerals and oil from the Amru Darian Basin. This is the first international agreement signed by the hardline rulers since they seized power in August 2021. The Amru oil project is an important project of practical cooperation between China and Afghanistan. Over the past year, the relevant departments of Chinese and Afghanistan governments have implemented the high-level consensus between the two sides and made a lot of efforts to steadily restart the project. Beijing has long courted the Taliban, sending dozens of delegations to Kabul despite Western efforts to make the hardliners international pariahs. In Afghanistan, this regional investment has been warmly embraced, as the country faces a crippling economic crisis, with over 50% of households unable to cover their basic needs, and an estimated 6.6 million who face severe levels of malnutrition. Yet, in a climate of collapse and instability, this is of course a risky business, both for the insurgents turned self-proclaimed ministers and for eager foreign investors. So, why is China continuing to invest heavily in Afghanistan? What does this tell us about Beijing and Kabul's regional and international ambitions? And what does this investment mean for the future of the Afghan economy? I'm Rosie McCabe. Welcome to the New Era of Voice. Taliban have entertained, I, I understand, something like 30 delegations of Chinese, state-owned enterprise company representatives, government representatives, foreign ministers, commercial ministers. This is Jeffrey Gruco. Jeffrey is the president and CEO of the Afghan-American Chamber of Commerce. He has a background in the private sector and in development, including working for USID that have come into Afghanistan attempting to get special concessional rights, we call it, in the mining sector, for gold, copper, and lithium, and special minerals. Afghanistan sits on top of an estimated $1 trillion worth of rare earth minerals. On paper, the country's large deposits of copper or lithium make it one of the most resource-rich in the world. However, the tricky part comes in extracting these precious metals, something the Chinese have been interested in doing for decades. They have been unsuccessful until last week when it was announced they'll make an investment in a oil and gas field in Cherbagan area. But they were already involved in that concession and hadn't, they had signed the concession under Ghani and never delivered a dime on the investment that they promised to make. They were just sitting on it. Now the Talibs have gone forward and they'll be able to move forward with a, state, a new state-owned enterprise. Recently, several projects were approved by the Economic Commission and with their undertaking, fundamental steps will be taken for the prosperity of the country and public welfare. This is what Taliban Deputy Prime Minister Mullah Abdul Ghani Barada had to say after the Chinese oil deal was struck. Now, the dollar amounts and longevity of the deal, set at 25 years, are what's new here. 
Negotiations over the Amu Darya Basin by the Chinese state are not. So anything that is mined in, uh, for example, let's say talc, uh, talc exports are just exploding, and it's a major duty, export duty payment receipt that the Talibs are getting now for talc out of Afghanistan. Well, most of those talc contracts are negotiated by a Pakistan broker who might know the talc mine owner or the uh, concession owner uh, over many decades. And the Pakistanis will negotiate it, uh, bring back samples. The Chinese have already set up on the border outside of Torkham and in other locations, compounds where they are assessing different mining products. Talcstone is used in many industries to make paper, plastic, paint, rubber, electric cables, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics and ceramics. Most of the talc processed in Afghanistan is shipped to India, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Germany. In partnership with Pakistan, China is buying illegally mined materials, testing them and then importing them at scale. What this web of mining activities highlights is how talc exports, like the exportation of coal, are a regional enterprise involving China as well as other Taliban neighbours. So the Chinese are very active in Afghanistan and they're active in Pakistan regionally and their strength has dramatically increased both economically, politically, I would say, even militarily at some point, potentially. The Chinese embassy in Afghanistan is functioning normally. We are ready to maintain communication with the new Afghan government and its leaders. We hope that the new Afghan government will listen to the views of all ethnic groups and factions and work in concert with the aspirations of its people and the expectations of the international community. We have noted that the Taliban has stressed that all people will benefit from the new regime. This was the Chinese foreign minister just one month after the Taliban returned to power. However, there are those who argue that China's position in Taliban-ruled Afghanistan should not be overstated. I think media has a tendency to inflate what China does. This is Jai Zhao, a researcher at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. So there is, I think, a tendency to look at the headlines, look at, okay, the initial MOU, the initial kind of statement or announcement of investment. And often these are projected investments. These are often sort of maximum extent of what China could or be, would be willing to invest. And often this is materialized in very limited ways. For example, there was the infamous 2008 copper deal. Yangshi Copper and the China Metallurgical Group Corporation were awarded a 20-year mining concession at Mez Einyak by the US-backed Afghan government. The area, 40 kilometres southeast of Kabul, was estimated to be the second largest copper deposit in the world. Security concerns and a range of technical difficulties, including a lack of infrastructure, mean the project never reached an extractive phase. That would be the same case with the, the oil basin deal, uh, which is, of course, newly uh, reinstated. But that's why also I'm a little bit skeptical to, you know, be too optimistic or too excited about this deal in the sense that I, I'm, it's not clear to me how much of it's going to materialize. This begs the question, given a history of failed deals, why does China continue to pour wealth, time and energy into Afghanistan? I think they are walking quite a, a thin or tight rope when it comes to relations with the Af Afghan Taliban. Essentially, they have limited leverage 
over the group. Obviously, the group itself, you know, wants international recognition, wants international investment, it wants to be treated as a normal state. The Taliban government has not been formally recognized by any country globally. With recent regressions over women's rights, including the banning of female NGO workers by the Taliban, the prospect of recognition from the West is non-existent. Even states like Pakistan or the UAE, which recognize the former Taliban administration, have withheld establishing formal diplomatic relations. But at the same time, without offering that particular carrot, I think China does want to make the Taliban feel as if they're being treated with enough, as enough of a, a de facto authority that the Taliban also behave as a normal state towards China, which the Taliban have long indicated that they would, uh, you know, sort of taking China's security concerns seriously. I do think that this deal is one piece in that puzzle. Another piece of the picture is, of course, security. China doesn't want a humanitarian crisis to result in terrorism or extremist activities spilling over its border. And it's hoped that economic ventures might help to provide some measure of financial and social stability, reducing the risk of violence destabilising the region. There's also a matter of China using its relations to pressure the Taliban to act within its borders. We hope the Afghan side will take resolute and effective measures, earnestly protect citizens and institutions from all countries, including the Chinese side, that are in Afghanistan. An attack at a Kabul hotel in December 2022, which injured five Chinese citizens, prompted a strong response from Beijing's foreign minister. The attack was claimed by Islamic State Khorasan, also known as ISK, a terrorist group that is filling the insurgent space once occupied by the Taliban and Al-Qaeda during the US occupation. Within this space also exists the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. Sometimes linked to ISK, China pays particular attention to the group's activities. Certainly they made verbal guarantees and, you know, that they would never allow their country to be a base uh, for attacks against China. The Turkestan movement is a relatively small group that seeks to liberate Xinjiang province and the Uyghur people. Uyghurs are a Muslim ethnic group that have been systematically incarcerated by the Chinese authorities, stripping them of their connection to their culture, language and religion. Chinese policies against the Uyghur population have been described as a genocide. China has repeatedly called on the Taliban to secure its borders from a perceived threat of violent extremists, and to eliminate the East Turkestan Islamic movement. They moved Uyghurs away from Badakhshan, you know, to other places. But in other regards, they've also hosted, you know, the leader of, they continue to host the leader of the Turkestan Islamic Party. While there have been examples of the Taliban taking China's pleas more seriously, there is no evidence of extraditions or of sustained efforts to locate and subdue these fighters. If anything... While China has a tendency to exaggerate this threat, there is a trend of growing anti-Chinese sentiment among disenchanted Afghan groups. China has to work with what they offer, essentially. There's no other alternative. So they really do balance their desire for diplomatic recognition and economic investment with also, you know, their ideological positions on, you know, hosting of what they've called refugees in the form of other terrorist groups uh, to include. When it comes to the West, This balancing act between diplomatic relations, economic gain and security is also a nuanced and complex picture, made more difficult by the growing presence of Beijing and others. 
after their rushed exit from Afghanistan, the US, UK and European allies have largely refused to engage with the Taliban in ways that could be seen as de facto recognition. They froze the country's foreign reserves to stop the funding of terrorist activities and private investment dried up. However, the US, UK and others have maintained channels of communication and continued deliveries of both cash shipments and humanitarian aid, maintaining a foothold as a counterweight to Beijing. Obviously, it is kind of harder to maybe use that economic stick to induce the Taliban to sort of change its positions on on things that are really important related to to gender and uh, human rights and all those questions. But I also do think that even the U.S. doesn't want to see, in a sense, economic collapse. You know, hence, you know, they're still providing humanitarian aid, you know, and humanitarian aid is still going forward, um, largely funded by Western countries. The Taliban's ban on female aid workers has, of course, thrown this strategy into crisis, highlighting for some the lack of Western leverage over the hardline group. Recent UN reports said the Taliban have not heeded demands to reverse the ban, but is offering certain menial concessions to allow for select humanitarian operations to continue. Nevertheless, when you compare US and Chinese contributions to Afghanistan, the latter still pales in comparison. Well, you also have to keep in mind that the amount of aid that has been brought up by Chinese and others is very small in comparison to what the United States have contributed overall in humanitarian aid. You're talking about specifically humanitarian aid. This is Shami Rabi. He's an economics professor at Montgomery College. He's also chair of the Audit Committee of the Central Bank in Afghanistan and co-chair of the Afghan Trust Fund. When it comes to foreign investment from China or elsewhere in the region, Shah was welcoming of both the injection of cash and the creation of jobs. The other added advantage of this type is the is creation of employment opportunities. So when you look at it here, you're talking about rough estimates, say maybe 3,000 to 3,500 Afghans could be employed in this particular sector. So that's an added advantage. And then also with the oil discovery, oil will have to be processed. That is opening up factories to process this, that is crude oil into gas. That will create more opportunities, more revenue that will be generated overall. But, he argued, disinvestment must be coupled with the release of frozen Afghan funds. There are two pots of money in question here. First, the foreign exchange assets that the central bank owned because they were part of the financial system. Second, deposits in the private sector. Last year, $3.5 billion of foreign exchange reserves were released by the US to the Afghan fund. The idea was to allow for an injection of cash without lining the pockets of the country's hardline rulers. The private sector funds remain frozen to this day. If our purpose is to choke off the economy, then why worry about humanitarian assistance? Humanitarian assistance is not a long-term solution. My hope again is that we continue this uh, with the this dialogue. I think the dialogue is going on. Engagement is going on. And there's hope that within a few months there will be some clear understanding with regard to the, some of the pending issues between the West and Taliban. When pressed on what he meant by clearer understanding, Shah talked about the intention of the ruling group and flexibility on both sides. But, he said, the main point was to release the funds and get people back to work. This is a position that the Taliban and China, along with Russia and other regional players, have pushed for, saying it is critical to ending the humanitarian crisis. 
support is really needed at this time because the economy is shrinking. There are no job opportunities overall, and we need to be able to rely heavily on trying to work toward bringing a sustained recovery. And the way that I mentioned here, you know, the sources that Taliban are working on, releasing of the reserves, all are very critical. However, despite the magnitude of need, this doesn't eradicate concerns over the misuse of release funds under the Taliban. I was interviewed by many people who actually argued, yes, no, that humanitarian aid that is brought in by United Nations, it is used and goes into the pocket of Taliban. I said, evidence shows totally different thing and, and ask UN and UN finally issued a statement that you have seen clearly telling you how the money is used. So let's try to separate rumors from facts. Let's try to see some evidence before making statements that are not factually based and no evidence can be shown with regard to where the money goes. A lack of transparency makes things difficult to track. Tens of millions of dollars are flown to Kabul every week by the US and the UN for distribution across the country. Reports from inside and outside of the country have said that much of the money never reaches those most in need. Some say key quantities are stolen by the Taliban and diverted to their own cause. Back to Jai. I I would be a little bit controversial on this. Um, a country that has almost no absorptive capacity be injected with, you know, upwards of trillions like of, of dollars to no benefit to the people. And I think that that has always been something that has really deeply disturbing to me. Jai said that she's not for freezing the funds forever, but said the situation is concerning. You know, who does that money, who would that money actually benefit? But in, in terms of what, you know, what kind of a game changer unfreezing of the assets would be, Certainly, I think it would make a difference on the ground to some extent, but I think my, for me, my, my concerns are pretty high about releasing those funds to a government that's not necessarily responsible or responsive to its, its people. Despite the injection of Chinese cash or the presence of other regional players, she said it is still the West who holds the Trump cards over the future of the Afghan economy. When you look at the position of, of some of uh, Afghanistan's neighbors, like uh, Russia, China, and others, you know, their their position is you should unfreeze those funds immediately because it's it's a, it's really a humanitarian crisis, and this is part of this is part of the problem. Uh, you know, you're punishing the Afghan people for something that wasn't really their fault. And there's of course there's some truth to that, but at the same time, you know, these are not the countries providing substantial humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. The West still is today in Afghanistan. A desperate humanitarian crisis is unfolding. In 2023, a staggering 28.3 million people, two-thirds of Afghanistan's population, need humanitarian assistance in order to survive, as the country enters its third consecutive year of drought-like conditions and the second year of crippling economic decline. Amid this crisis, two sides look towards Afghanistan with their own agendas guiding their policies. East of Afghanistan, China seeks to make deals for oils and rare minerals, with little interest in holding the Taliban to account on their human rights record. And west of Afghanistan, governments are trying to control the monster that they let loose on the country and the ensuing economic crisis, with little success. Powerless to affect decisions in either Beijing or Washington, the people of Afghanistan are waiting for a future that looks ever bleaker. Final words to Jeffrey Grieco. I'll just tell you one story that broke my heart. One of my, one of my friends, and he's a member of, of our chamber, 
is a uh, Afghan bank leader. He has lived in Afghanistan for 40 plus years. He's educated at Afghan universities. He's gotten banking certifications outside Afghanistan. Very well established now, but he is struggling to keep his bank alive. He told me that he went to the market. This was about a month ago, he told me this. He went to the market and there he saw one of his friends from college who also was in the banking sector and he thought was doing okay. He's there in his suit and tie begging for money because he no longer could afford to pay himself or any of his employees and he was out of hope. He said, imagine one of your good friends, you haven't seen him in a few years, maybe three or four years, and now you see him, he's emaciated, he's wearing a suit that clearly doesn't fit him anymore, and he doesn't have money to even feed his family. And who do you think people blame for that? This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Rosie McCabe, with help from Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar Elphil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find a link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. <laughs>